Well, as many of you are aware, last week and a half, the last week and a half, Christine and I had a tremendous opportunity to spend quality time enjoying God's creation. I stumbled upon a a quote by John Calvin where he said that creation is the theater of God's glory. And boy, did I ever see that on display this last week and a half. What a wonderful trip that we had. That said, I am super excited to be back, and Christine as well. She's in the nursery today. Um, With our family here at Miriam Christian Chapel. What's more, as I've alluded to in weeks past... Um, tremendously, to use a different adverb, or or is that an adjective? Eric could help me. (laughs) It's the L-Y, it's an adverb. (laughs) Excited to start this new series in the book of 1 John. As is our practice when starting a book, you've seen in the book of Malachi, as well as Philippians, I like to begin to set the stage with kind of an overarching message, an introduction to a book in general, and that will be the case today. Uh, The title of today's message is an introduction to 1 John. So, without further ado, if you'd take your Bibles and open them to 1 John, uh, chapter 5, and please stand with me. I was wondering if you're going to stand there for a second. You're turning your Bible, so I'll give you grace. (laughs) But we're going to read chapter 5, verse 13. That will be um, one of the key fundamental theme verses that we see within this book. So as we dive into this introduction to the book, we'll just read this one verse. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 reads, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. We praise the Lord for his authoritative living, inspired, inerrant word of God. Now, most of you by by now are more than familiar with my appreciation of sports. It's been a big part of my life. It's certainly something that I enjoy on a regular basis. Not just the competing aspect of sports, but also the coaching aspect. There's a certain phrase or comment that's certainly at times overused, but it can't be stated enough when it comes to sports or life really in general. And that is that fundamentals are absolutely essential to success. If it's football, one of my joys and several others, in the room. What good is it 
if we know the intricacies of all the terminology while neglecting the basics of blocking, tackling, throwing, catching, and running. Many of you are more than likely familiar with that great Vince Lombardi quote, the famous coach of the Green Bay Packers, when he began his training camp in 1961. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, and you know my affinity for soccer too as well, and some maybe even listening online different parts of the world to this. And when they hear football, they don't think of the football that I'm referring to, but American football, let me say. Doesn't get much more basic than that. This is a football, gentlemen. That's how Vince Lombardi started that training camp. What about our walks with Christ? Nothing carries a greater significance or a greater commitment than our walks with Christ. Hence, the absolute necessity for us to be grounded and rooted in the fundamental basics of Christianity. Paul said it like this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He said, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Why is it? Whether it's sports Sales, farming, whatever it may be that we endeavor to work diligently in, at times, neglect the basics, the fundamentals. There's always a danger in neglecting those fundamentals. We've used this phrase in the past. And we hope not to fall into this trap, but indeed familiarity at times breeds contempt. As for the Apostle John, this was his purpose in writing this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. That they would be grounded and rooted in the basics and in the fundamentals of their Christian faith. Within those churches, unfortunately... False teachers had begun to creep in. And then because of that, due to the neglect of basic Christianity, well-meaning believers were being led astray. Most scholars believe that what primarily contributed to that was the rise of Gnosticism. Now, that belief in its attack on the humanity of Christ, or its idea that one requires a special, revelatory, inspired knowledge outside of the Scriptures was extremely dangerous to the church. And John 
the good shepherd that he was, under shepherd, desired to protect the sheep. Much in the same manner, the church today is still under attack by heretical ideas or thoughts that would lead us astray, contrary to orthodox, fundamental, basic Christianity. Ideas that if we are not careful, will lead us astray. Be a danger to us. Some of those ideas at times contribute into depression and anxiety that still is rampant within well-meaning, born-again believers. What is it that contributes to our lack of joy at times? Moreover, as pseudo, as I would say, churches around the world and even within our country here today, continue to disregard the dignity and the reverence of Christ and his word, the holiness of God in some respects is being marred. What's more, why is it that so many claim to follow Christ and yet their lives bear no fruit? fruit of the Spirit. Is that even possible? To be a believer and to not manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Or what about John's purpose for writing, which we just read? I'll state it again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The assurance of salvation is as comforting as it gets. No other religion offers that but the one and only true religion of Christianity. Nevertheless, why do so many, so many well-meaning believers at times struggle with assurance of salvation. Better yet, what is the answer to that struggle? And our study through this book of 1 John will touch upon several of those details and those discussions in more in depth. You'll see John along the way. And I love this about the way he communicates. He will communicate in a way that is objective, certain, and without relativity. Something that I believe wholeheartedly we need more of in this day and age, albeit seasoned with grace. I truly believe this will be extremely helpful for us in protecting and guarding us from being taken captive through empty deception or the philosophies and the traditions of men. Just in the same manner that John desired to encourage and fortify the churches of Asia Minor in the same way. 
And as for this message, I'll provide a brief overarching answer to the question stemming from 1 John 5.13. If we posed it for a question for us, how do we know that we have eternal life? Throughout the book, we'll see three actions to continue displaying a response to that question. Three actions that in all respect provide tremendous main themes to the book. This morning, of course, we'll cover them in a cursory form. In the weeks to come, we'll dive deeper and mine out the good stuff within each and every one of these verses of this book, 1 John. That said, our first action is, number one, a proper belief. Now, when we think of the most fundamental aspect of Christianity, it must begin with a proper belief. If we were to use our this is a football example, then certainly chapter 4, verse 15, turn there, would be as basic and as essential for us when it comes to a proper belief. Chapter 4, verse 15 reads, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. About as basic as it gets, but critical at its core. Or, turn back to chapter 2, verse 23. John states, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Critical, essential. And then one more, extremely fundamental, one that I'm very excited to get to, and we may even only preach that one verse in that message because there's so much to unpack in that one verse. Chapter 2, verse 2 reads, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, as I just stated, there is a lot to unpack just in that simple verse, and we'll get there, Lord willing. If I use an old southern term, we would say, Lord willing, and if the creek don't rise. <laughs> Can I say that? I like it. Notwithstanding, on the surface, in that verse in and of itself, when we look at a proper belief, especially in this word propitiation, it involves the removal of God's wrath. That is, in essence, what that term communicates. The removal of God's wrath. So, at least on the surface, in those three verses, there's a common thread. The Son of God. The supernatural connection of the Son and the Father. And the propitiation 
the removal of God's wrath, they all communicate when it comes to a proper belief, one monumental truth, and that is the deity of Christ. Why does one have assurance of salvation? How does one have confidence that God has removed the wrath that each and every one of us deserve? It's because a proper belief fully understands, as basic as it is, that Jesus Christ is 100% fully God in the flesh. Amen? Turn back to chapter 2 and look at verses 15 and 17. I want us to look and see what John had to say concerning man's dangerous ideas. Ideas that lose sight of the lordship of Christ. This certain truth and proper belief that he is God in the flesh. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, read. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. As for Gnosticism, the philosophers of the day were able to deceive some in their masquerade of knowledge. That said, we know fully that Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, states that the fear of the Lord You often hear me quote that verse. Powerful verse indeed is the beginning of knowledge. The absolute and certain truth that Christ is God in the flesh guards our hearts and our minds against empty deception and the philosophies and traditions of men. John knew this, and he desired to communicate this truth to these churches. And it still rings true for us as we desire to stand strong against the empty deceptions of our world. And speaking of Gnosticism again in that original threat, you'll remember that it had an attack on the humanity of Christ as well, as I mentioned. Not just this understanding that you needed some special knowledge outside of Scripture to understand life and God and all that creation exists. Well, the attack on humanity was essential to respond to as well. Turn back to chapter 1. The humanity of Christ. John begins his letter in verses 1 and 2 with a response to that. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, 
what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, what we have touched, what was manifested. Now look over at chapter 4, verse 2. John states, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why was this vital for the original audience as well as us here today to be reminded of? We've mentioned it in the past. You know it. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. In order for atonement to be made, the covering of sin, that's what that word atonement communicates, there had to be a sacrifice, a literal, actual sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice in Christ's body upon the cross, Speaking of his humanity, the writer of Hebrews described it as such. In chapter 2, verse 17, when he said, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to be made like this in his brethren. His humanity, as well as his deity, is essential, is basic, is fundamental, but powerful indeed in establishing and rooting and grounding us against air. The writer goes on to, in Hebrews, to say what comfort his humanity produces. In verse 18, when he says, for since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We worship this great God and King, our Lord Jesus Christ. But he is most certainly a personal and intimate savior to us as well. One who fully understands everything that we are afflicted with on a daily basis. So, how might we find benefit as we work our way through this book Even for the believer, a constant, basic reminder of the deity of Christ is paramount. Maybe there's some here that at times, or even now, are listening to us via live stream that have struggled with assurance of salvation. John writes 
not just to the churches in Asia Minor, but the application flows forth for us here today that you may know that you have eternal life. How? Because your salvation is grounded in the work of the living God. Amen. One that because of his deity is able to complete and finish what he began in you. Do you believe that? Do you rest in that when tempted with despair or a lack of belief and that those whom he has called, he will bring. Those whom he has justified, he will glorify. Amen. Moreover, because of his deity, his divine character and nature, you can rest in him in the midst of your depression and your anxiety and your despair. We know what he states in the Sermon on the Mount. If he takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and God in the flesh, he will most certainly preserve and take care of you. Never giving you more than what you can handle. John, in his introduction, even alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. As we grow in the fundamentals and the basics of Christianity, our joy grows, blossoms, flourishes. And what about a proper belief in his humanity? Do any of us, and I know the answer to this question, because I'm right there with you, struggle with sin on a daily basis? The writer of Hebrews, again, in chapter 4, verse 15, concerning Christ's humanity, encourages us when he states, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Once again, as I mentioned, he is a personal and intimate Savior, not just this great God and King and Master that we serve. He has been tempted in all things yet without sin. It's in Christ's humanity that we find intimacy to commune with him. To call him Abba, Father. That great Aramaic term of intimacy. To come before him in confidence as a child of God. Turn over at chapter 5 concerning that confidence. Reflecting upon the humanity of Christ. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, John writes, This is the confidence which we have before him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Intimate connection. That veil has been torn. Direct access to the throne of heaven as we commune with our intimate, personal Savior. All of this being said, there's tremendous benefit, ironclad protection in a proper belief, fundamental as it is. However, we're going to see as we work our way through this book, there's much more to fundamental basic Christianity than a proper belief. James warns us, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Our second action will demonstrate what eternal life really is. And that word I emphasize, demonstrate. And that's number two, a willful obedience. Fundamental action number two, a willful obedience now there is an immediate danger of misinterpretation that I have to address up front before talking about willful obedience. Notice I use the word demonstrate, emphasize, demonstrate eternal life in the description of this action. Salvation has and will always be by grace and faith alone. No amount of works or willful obedience could ever satisfy or justify our souls. We fully are aware of that reality. If that was the case, we'd all be in a world of trouble. Amen? John confirms this basic Christianity. In chapter 5, we're already there, verses 10 and 12. He states, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Skip down a little bit. He says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Proper belief. Salvation by grace and faith alone is fundamental, basic Christianity. With that understood, John is going to move forward throughout this letter and continue to communicate in that objective, certain style that I mentioned without relativity concerning the absolute truth from Scripture that a proper belief 
will inevitably and always lead to a willful obedience. Let's briefly look at several examples of this throughout the book. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verses 5 and 6. John states, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Turn one chapter over, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to the objective, certain style of communication John uses here. Verses 3 and 4, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ouch. And then perhaps one of the most striking comments of them all. Turn to chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. We read, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who was born of God practices sin. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy these works. I just read that, but it's good for repetition, is it not? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, as we alluded to, John does not mince words here. Children of God practice righteousness. Children of the devil practice sin. Now, it's important to note whatever application of life the world, I emphasize, participates in, obedience typically follows suit. Why does the child obey his parents? Why does the employee in the world obey his manager? Why does anyone, apart from the grace of God, practice obedience? 
I would argue, and I believe wholeheartedly, Scripture attests to it, that it's all about self-preservation. It's all about self-promotion. Or at times, even fear. And why the world practices obedience. What's in it for me? What about the Christian? How does he practice obedience? Why does he serve his wife? Why does he love his wife as Christ loved the church? Why does he obey his his manager? It's because he desires to please God and to glorify him in all that he does. He cannot help but obey. Not out of selfish motivation, but he's like a trained dog, zeroed in on the eyes of his master, undistracted, devoted to please and obey his master with a single purpose of obedience. Such is the heart of the man of God as he looks to his master and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church father, Augustine, stated it as such. He said, wicked men obey from fear. Good men from love. We'll touch upon that love in our third action Nevertheless, how do we know that we have eternal life? It begins with an unceasing, inescapable desire to practice willful obedience. To please our God, our Savior, who paid the price, the ultimate price for us. What does that ultimately look like for the Christian? Does he manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Love, peace, joy, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, all of these attributes, does it flow forth from every ounce of his being? Not perfectly. We know we fall short. But he practices righteousness. That's what we, John states. That's what the word of God communicates. Does he desire to know the Lord more through his word? A hunger and a thirst for righteousness? And his revealed canon of scripture in the 66 books of this Bible? Does he have a consistent craving to fellowship with the Lord? And his people? John mentions this in the beginning of the letter, verse 3 of chapter 1, when he says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father, chapter 1, verse 3. 
What's more, for the Christian, his commandments are not burdensome. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 3. We read, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And what's interesting about this concept is the contrast of the world and its typical demands placed upon us. In a world that constantly places heavy yokes upon us, Jesus reminds us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, Corinth, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These truths produce the, tr- the reality that a proper belief breeds a willful obedience. Why is that the case? Because if you are in Christ, you are born again, a new creation. No longer a slave to sin, capable and willing to practice righteousness and obedience. By the power of the Holy Spirit within you and the grace of God, we persevere. A willful obedience is obviously a fortress of protection for us when it comes to Preserving holiness as well. This protection of apostasy, define that term as the rebellion against the faith, was articulated by John in chapter 2, verse 19. And this will be a great verse that I can't wait for us to get to. Really helps us in basic fundamental Christianity and understanding greater truths, but just on the surface, 2.19 reads, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not of us. This willful obedience is, is, is key. And it protects the church. It protects us individually of understanding who truly has proper belief. Preserving the holiness of the church. And that said, Let us never forget the benefit, not just of preserving holiness and willful obedience, but the reality that willful obedience 
produces joy and peace when we practice it. And oh, do we all desire that in a day and age such as this. You don't need to turn there. But in John's gospel, not this letter, but in the gospel of John, the same author, he stated it as such concerning this this benefit of practicing joyful, willful obedience, what it produces. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 23 reads, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Hear a common thread there again, John is communicating. But then he goes on to say, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. As we work through this book, whatever our struggles might be, would it challenge you? Would you prayerfully be preparing your heart and soul to practice more willful obedience? I promise you, it will inevitably initiate in you a greater awareness of God's presence, His peace, His joy in your life in order that we might overcome depression, anxiety, whatever may beset us. In Philippians, we talked about that, dwelling and practicing and learning righteousness. And that said, let's turn our attention to the third and final action of fundamental Christianity found within this book. And that's number three, a selfless love. We've already mentioned how some believe, might I add, some profess to believe, but never practice obedience. We also mentioned the distinction between different motivations for obedience. It's in this third action where John desires to support basic Christianity at its core. Look over at chapter 3. As we consider a selfless love. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, I'll read. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Or, look over at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. We read, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Once again, these objective, certain truths, he is just laying it out for us. Inspired by the Spirit of God. And throughout this book, we are going to be certainly challenged in a hard, but good and beneficial way. For the Christian, what is the motivation behind every action? The model is Christ and his selfless love. John goes on to demonstrate this right where we were in verses 9 and 10. When he states, chapter 4, By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We all know, as true born-again believers, we practice righteousness, not sin. That said, we're also, all of us, fully aware that we still wrestle with this flesh. Wretched as it is, as Paul says. Even as believers... We're not precluded from obedience out of selfish motivation. Husbands, are you serving your wives? Loving your wives because you desire something in return? Wives, are you submitting to the headship of your husbands because ultimately you desire to manipulate him in other ways? Young people, are you submitting to the leadership of your home simply out of the fear of consequences? We're going to see throughout this study a constant charge for all of us when it comes to a selfless, self-sacrificial love. Not a selfish obedience that desires something in return. Is this not what Christ did for, for you, his people? He loved you if you are in Christ here today. He removed the wrath that you deserve from you.
when you had absolutely nothing to offer him in return? Nothing. And you're depraved, destined to hell, as we sang, hell-bound race that you were running. We started with the question, how do we know that we have eternal life? It begins with a proper belief, which leads to a willful obedience, shining forth a selfless love, emulating Christ. And then in that selfless love, We're driven to ultimate peace and joy and comfort. Now, I can't wait to get to this passage, but look at chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. As we consider this ultimate peace and even our question for the day, how might we know that we have eternal life? Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 read, By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Beloved, do you know the perfect selfless love of Christ? If not, Tomorrow is not promised. Life is but a vapor. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Believe in the one who was 100% fully God, 100% fully man. Was made atonement covering your sins if you do know him which I'm mindful is perhaps the majority in this room pray along with me as we work through this book pray along with me that this book 1 John drives us to greater levels of willful obedience and selfless love. For His glory and His honor above all things. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we look to you as the the beginner, the, the perfecter and the finisher of our faith, 
We look to the cross and we see the perfect example of selfless love. Lord, for those of us who have trusted and received you as our Lord and Savior, oh God, create in us a clean heart. Revive our souls in order that we might serve you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Glorifying you in all that we do. Practicing righteousness, not sin. Giving of our lives in the same manner that you gave of yours. Counting others as more significant than ourselves. Lord, I pray for your people here, the good people of Miriam Christian Chapel. We pray together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Use your word, Lord. Transform and renew our minds for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.